HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. I'm Chris Kuzmi. And I'm Mary Izette. From Fomenabari. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. It's kind of a perfect fall day to throw some cider, so it's it's so appropriate that David Dolgano of Shaxbury is here to do so with me. And we're going to start actually just defining the term throwing cider, because it's not like, you know, uh, christening a boat and smashing it with champagne. You're, you're not tossing a bottle and, and letting it burst open. Yeah, no, no. Um, we are basically holding the bottle from above our heads and the glass at our waist and then carefully pouring it from bottle straight into glass. And that's a Basque tradition that uh, was really born out of a need to aerate the cider to kind of bring it back to life uh, when Basque cider was released in the spring as kind of the rebirth with spring and a way to release some of the natural effervescence uh, in the cider, even though there's no added carbon dioxide, there's a bit left over from the fermentation. So you know very well what I'm holding right now. Yeah. 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 Yep. I, I have a collection of these, and I, I don't know if there's even a term for these. I, I think it's referred to as a something like a chupon. Or, yeah, I'd have to double check, though. But every year at uh, the wonderful Cheeky Fest behind Chiquito mm-hmm. in Chelsea, uh, Alex, Raj, and Edder uh, throw this huge party. You know, uh, tons of beautiful Basque cuisine, but, you know, most epically, uh, people pouring high and pouring plenty of cider. Yeah, yeah. That's a, it's, a, it's a really special time of year, and, and that restaurant has been deeply inspiring for us uh, at Shaxbury Cider and everything that they do. Uh, we love the Basque cider tradition and the Basque food tradition and and um, <clears throat> working with uh, chefs and, and, and people to bring those traditions here to the United States has been a really fun part of our of our uh, of our story. So how much cider is in the Kansas City burnt ends tradition? <laughs> <laughs> um, to date, uh, very little that I'm aware of. Yeah. Uh, although we we hope, you know, have have, have high dreams to uh to change that i mean your family is is based there had a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of retail jewelry stores there Mm -hmm. um 
but let's talk about you know Arthur Bryant's and, and and Gates and all the barbecue there with. Yeah, I mean it, it is a cuisine that's rife for acidity, mm-hmm. rife for cider. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the you know barbecue being being so uh, filled with with pork and and very rich fatty salty flavors. And, and even with the sweet sauce, uh, the, the the next component that it needs, uh, we feel is is a nice dose of acidity, which which is a big part of um, the flavor profile in our ciders. And your ciders tend more towards the Basque at the moment, but I know you're going <clears throat> a little more international. So let, let's talk about cider in general, because uh, you know there was a time pre-prohibition where cider flourished, mm-hmm. and why did it disappear? Cider um, sort of started to disappear um, even before Prohibition as um, Americans were migrating from rural areas into urban areas. Uh, this farmer's drink became less accessible um, when when everyone had um, was living in rural areas. They had uh, small orchards uh, all throughout New England, and it was part of the annual routine to press cider in the fall and make it and then drink it starting in the wintertime as a way to, you know, help survive the cold, desolate New England winters. So when when uh, uh, urbanization began to happen at the early 20th century, um, people didn't have uh, uh, immediate access to, to apples and, and to cider. And, and along that, uh, around that same time, you also had a, a large immigration of uh, folks from Germany who brought the tradition of beer. And so with the rise of beer, with urbanization, uh, suddenly ciders, uh, you know, starting to decline some. And then the nail in the coffin was really prohibition. Um, you can perhaps remember or maybe you've seen some of the prohibitionists, some of the most famous sort of photos of them are, are, are prohibitionists, you know, wielding uh, a hatchet because they've gone around cutting down apple trees. So apples were really a part of the, the narrative, one of the bad guys of, of, of prohibition. It's amazing. It's like the antithetical Johnny Appleseed, you know, taking the trees down that, that were already there. And, yeah. you know, that kind of segues into this idea of you are not a Johnny Appleseed. Your company isn't because you didn't go around planting these trees. Mm-mm. They were already there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a wonderful thing that we discovered uh, when we first were starting, when Colin and I were first starting our company in 2013, that in fact the Champlain Valley of Vermont and, and really all of New England um, uh, is, is filled with these incredible apples to make cider, apples that have the tannins and acidity and aromatics that really make um, make cider stand out and make it something that begs to be paired with with food, you know, like barbecue, like what you were mentioning earlier. Um, those flavor components, which which we don't find in most of the commercially available apples in the United States, which are really eating apples, so they're sweet, they're juicy. They're lovely to, you know, maybe go in a salad, um, but they're not really, they were not originally propagated to be fermented. And so this uh, process of finding these lost apples became a really uh, core part of our business. Yeah, and, you know, on top of them not being the edible ones per se, they, they also were unsightly. 
Because when you see images of these blemished fruit, you, you wouldn't think that they make such a stunning drink as, as you make today. Yeah. Yeah, the easiest way to describe to people, if, you know, if, uh, if you have an apple tree or, or you found a tree and you want to know if it's a good apple for cider, uh, a good start would be if it's ugly and if it tastes really bad. You yeah. Know, if it's a spitter. Um, you bite into it and the tannins light up and, and coat your mouth almost like you just put uh, a handful of cotton balls in your mouth. Then that apple is the one that we want to make into cider. I was going to use some kind of metaphor of uh, those 80s movies or 90s movies when the girl takes off her glasses and lets her hair down. <laughs> but then you said biting and all this stuff, and I'm just, I didn't want to anthropomorphize yeah. Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah. There, there was a beer commercial. It was the Bitter Beer Face sometime in oh, maybe yes, like I the 90s, that. early yeah. 2000s. And that's the face. Like, if you make the Bitter Beer Face... Uh, then uh, when you bite into an apple, then, then there's a good chance that, that we want to make that into cider. Well, you know, talk to me about this kind of felicitous meeting with uh, Michael Lee of Twig Farm. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's I, I think, such a tremendous, you know, artisanal cheesemaker. Uh, I think I have some of his goat tome at home right now. Nice. But you had this idea, you had this grandiose plan of making cider, but it wasn't until you tasted his homebrew yeah. that everything changed. Yes, there was um, there was an aha moment there for Colin and me. Um, we both remember it like it was yesterday, and it has shaped so much of what our cider company has has become. And uh, so Michael Lee grew up in Maine. He had been traipsing through, you know, the New England countryside, eating apples his entire life. So no surprise when when he. And his wife settled in Vermont um, after working in Boston to make uh, settled in Vermont to make cheese. Um, right around their their farmstead are tons of old orchards, and so he started making a cider out of forged apples. And when we tasted it, and he told us they were made, his ciders were made from you know Vermont apples. We were like, "What? <laughs> that is just not." possible cider from vermont apples tastes maybe appley at best but you know kind of one-dimensional and and it doesn't have a lot of depth yeah is it like lambrusco was i guess in the 70s until now yeah yeah that could be a good comparison you know just a lot of fruit but just not a whole lot going on and so that's why it becomes a great base for flavored cider so a lot of cider in the united states today is flavored with hops or cranberries blueberries ginger because it's an alcoholic base but it doesn't have the tannin and acidity and the depth that comes from those those flavors, um, but his did. It just it it was just a remarkable moment. Um, we had tasted lots of cider from England, from France, from Spain, and and that was and and from um, uh, from Farnham Hill in New Hampshire, who makes sort of English style ciders here in the United States, and. Those were the points of inspiration for us on the cider side, and um, and here it was. And, and we asked him, you know, Michael, um, how did you make this? And and so he he pointed out to us all around his farm these amazing apples that he'd just gone out and picked, and 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 very fortuitously, it was 2013 when um, there had been a late frost in 2012 which caused 2013 to be this absolutely incredible year for wild apples because they're very finicky. They don't produce apples every year. 
Um, so the, 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 the sort of these two things happening in tandem, we're starting a company, we've, or three things, we, we're starting a company, we taste this incredible cider from, from Michael, and then voila, we walk literally anywhere in the Champlain Valley and we're finding, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that was an apple tree. That hasn't produced apples in five years. And they taste bitter and awful. And so we're like, heck yeah, (laughs) cider time. Give us the worst you got. Yeah. You know, uh, finding these apple trees, uh, stumbling upon them, it's a really interesting source who you've gone through to locate these. um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, a lot of them are on old dairy farms. And it's the hunters that Mm -hmm. that are aware of, you know, this liquid gold before you are. Yeah. Yeah. Hunters are a great resource for us because apples tend to attract uh, grouse. They tend to attract deer and, and all kinds of wildlife. So, you know, we will often trade uh, one, you know, lost apple for one lost apple with with a with a with a deer hunter. You know, they'll tell us where a site is if we tell them where a site is, kind of thing. But it has to be tit for tat, um, and and that's just one of the you know sort of many beautiful parts of 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 this process. Um, and so long as we leave, you know, a few apples out there for the deer, they're, they're very happy, but they're also keen to see these trees being put to use. And I'm assuming during hunting season, your logo changes from whatever hue it is to bright, bright orange. Yeah, yeah. At least uh, three uh, hashes of, of orange at any given time, um, because starting October 1st, it's hunting season. So <laughs> you gotta got to follow pro- protocol there. You know, these apples that were in... Mike Lee's, uh, you know, original mm-hmm. homebrew blend. Did you ever go back and define what they were? were you... Which trees or yeah, what trees, what apples? Yeah, so we have worked with many of the trees um, that Michael Lee had been picking from since 2006 or so, and making his home cider out of. And we've used um, many of those trees in in what is now the Lost and Found, um, and then. As um, I brought a little treat today, which is uh, we um, worked with Michael Lee to do the twig cuvee. And so all of the apples in this uh, cider were um, harvested by Michael, and uh, he created this blend. And it's been a fun project that, that's now um, available where he worked in Boston at Formaggio Kitchen um, and in Vermont at uh, Misery Loves Company. Um, so that's a little treat for you. That's a, should we just throw it right now? Um, yeah, we absolutely could. Um, yeah. We'd have to grab an opener. I, I, we'll get that during the break, and I'll also give you the warning that if you listen back to uh, past archives, the champagne show not only uh, ended with me sabering a bottle, but yes. almost ended the station uh, <laughs> as we did it straight over the equipment itself. <laughs> Sorry, Jack. Um, thank you, Belinda. Yeah. But we're going to take a quick break, come back, and not only talk about from outsiders, but we're going overseas to England, Spain, and France. You've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. 
Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Plus, the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. And welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with David Dog. Oh, I was going to screw up your last name. Doglano. Dogano of, of Shaxbury Cider. Um, I, I just kind of got, like, overly excited seeing this cider be opened um, because, you know, it, it's a fermented thing. And let, let's define the difference first between, you know, like apple juice, um, apple cider, and hard cider. Yeah, so um, apple juice in the United States tends to be, people tend to think of like mots. So it's it's a sweet cider, so not fermented, and typically it's been pasteurized, so it's shelf-stable. And then sweet cider is um, one of the delicacies of fall, so tends to be unfiltered and only lightly pasteurized or unpasteurized. And that has that sort of darker maroon color to it or brown color to it. And then uh, hard cider is when you take uh, cider, uh, sweet cider, and ferment it like a wine uh, into uh, a finished uh, alcoholic beverage. Yeah, so I'm at the latter part. We're at the latter part, yeah. Uh, It's wonderful to be at the latter (laughs) because we're we're tasting Michael Lee's uh, the, the twig cuvee that you guys make. Um, is this available publicly, or is this a, a special little gift? It is available uh, somewhat publicly. Uh, it is available at Formaggio Kitchen in Boston, uh, where Michael used to work. And so we did this project uh, along with Formaggio, and um, and so they'll have it hopefully uh, through, through the late fall or early winter. Yeah, uh, I mean, the complexity there, like you said... First of all, let's let's talk about dry, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Because that's what makes your ciders and most ciders that I love so distinctly different than you know what a lot of people have had here in the states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, dry and sweet are two words to describe the level of sugar in an alcoholic beverage. So, um, a dry cider tends to have little to no sugar. Um, and a sweet cider or a sweet wine would have more, um, more sugar, more residual sugar. Um, so our ciders tend to be on the dry side, which is not to say that they're not um, fruity. You know, we make a cider, our, our dry can cider actually, is still very sort of approachable and drinkable because it has fruit character. And so I like to, you know, ed- explain to people the difference between those two words. Dry doesn't necessarily mean funky and weird. It just means 
little to no sugar. Yeah, and it, it also means it's not cloying. So, mm-hmm. you know, that mm-hmm. that's why it's in this space where it's kind of perfect for food. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we were just talking over break about this massive steak that they have in Spain. Uh, I think that they mm-hmm. serve at Chiquito mm-hmm. as well. How, how do you pronounce it? Chuleta. Chuleta. So yeah. this is like one of the bigger rib steaks you've ever seen in your life. Yes. And, and is there some kind of ceremony of eating that with cider? Absolutely. Uh, in the Basque tradition, they make a, a natural dry cider. It's fermented with native yeast. It's unfiltered. There's no added CO2. It's just the apples that are native to their area um, <clears throat> fermented into one of the most gorgeous uh, fermented beverages that I think exists on this planet. And because this cider tends to be naturally a little higher in acidity, it works really well with salty, fatty foods. So in the Basque region, if you go to the cider houses outside of San Sebastian, they will serve you pretty much the same meal at every cider house. It starts off with chorizo cooked in the cider, chorizo a la sidra, and then uh, you progress to um, a cod omelet, um, and then the main featured dish is this big cut of red meat. And people don't often associate cider with red meat. It's usually left to the big red wines. But there are definitely ciders like like Bass Cider um, that, that work beautifully in that context. I mean, I see the connection right there in, in the dairy farms that, that you're you know foraging these apples. Mm-hmm. I mean, the cows are grazing, so why not close that cycle and... I mean, it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> and I, <we're clears throat> I just had that uh, epiphany myself, uh-huh. so I, I feel like everyone else. I don't always make the connections. <laughs> so there that is. Yeah. But, you know, let's talk more about Spain, because mm-hmm. you have this wonderful collaboration over there. Mm-hmm. Um, Shaxbury Cider is firmly in Vermont, in, in New England. But the wonderful thing about your company is uh, showing the international side of, of what cider is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when when Colin and I were getting started with, with Shaxbury, we knew we wanted to create uh, collaborative partnerships with cider makers in, in, in Europe because the, the styles are so distinctive there and so wine-like and they pair so well with food. And they just have um, so many different apple varieties that we just don't have access to here in the United States. And these these high tannin, naturally acidic ciders uh, or apples that that turn into wonderful ciders. So it's not your typical Jonah Gold, Spartan mm-hmm. Mac, right? Yeah, um, they're they have crazy in in Spain, in Spain, northern Spain, crazy Euskera names like Moco and uh, <laughs> Uretela and all. all all kinds of um, wonderful words. Um, and so we decided um, when we were first starting in 2013 that we would create these these partnerships. And um, so we went and visited England, France, and Spain, and um, after tasting many, many, many Spanish ciders, um, settled uh, upon working with Petra Tegui Sagardoa uh, with a woman named Ainara Otaño, and she's a fifth-generation cider maker, um, one of the only female cider makers um, in Europe that I know of. And she just makes a beautiful rendition 
of a traditional Basque cider. And how does that differ from what we're drinking now? Because what's cool about this cider, the, the Michael Lee, is that it's kind of blooming. It's kind mm-hmm. of opening up, you know, mm-hmm. the dryness on the palate is still there, mm-hmm. but uh, you're getting more and more distinct fruits. Yeah. Because this is a blend of many different types of apples. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a blend of, of foraged apples from right, ar- right around um, Michael's farmstead in, in, in Vermont. <clears throat> and so the Basque cider um, next to this would, um, this has really nice tannins. And, and that's a big focus of, of, of the flavor profile here is the kind of woody tannins. The Basque tends to be more about the acidity, the, the, the citrusy notes, kind of grapefruit rind, um, and that, and just a hint of acetic acid. And, um, which, you know, is a, I, I am a fan, you, you <laughs> know a bit about, I've heard. Um, and so, um, that to me is the sort of one of the big standout differences. You have the classic, the farmhouse, uh, uh, even a barrel reserved and pet gnat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, this, this is a big world of cider that you're introducing, you know, not any single varietal. Most of your bottles are, are blends of mm. X amount of apples, uh, mm-hmm. I, I know you have some fun names like the Lost Apple Number Thirty Six, Ken, Kingston Blacks, Bandits, Momos. Mm-hmm. I mean, like you said, th- these are not apples we've ever seen or tasted before on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where are they? You know, some maybe a backbone, some maybe like a higher note. Um, how, how do you figure out how to blend all these things together into a harmonious cider? <laughs> Wonderful question. <clears throat> um, when we're creating blends, we go about it. A bunch of different ways. Sometimes we're working with a couple of specific beverages that are inspiring to us. And so, for instance, lately we've been drinking a lot of farmhouse ales. You know, I love the Allagash Saison. I love some of the beautiful uh, beers coming out of Side Project and in St. Louis, um, Hill Farmstead in Vermont. And and so, you know, we, we work from these farmhouse ales and we're like, okay, we're inspired here. We have these raw ingredients, all of these different, you know, ciders we've created out of these different apples. And so let's let's start, you know, blending and working together a small team of people. So Colin, myself, Luke, uh, Michael is a, an important part of this process, Kim, Beatty, um, and Alex, uh, some of our other employees. And you know, we kind of all team up to, to create these, uh, these blends and it's, it's not, um, it's not like, okay, we've got, you know, one barrel of this, 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 and this, and this is it for the, you know, a lot of this is, is sensory analysis and it's based on kind of what's available. Um, so that's been a, a big part of it. And then on the other side, um, we have some blends like our, our dry can or our classic cider that are, ongoing and available year round and and went through a very sort of tightly scrutinized process of of blending and are were set up so that we can make them year to year and they taste pretty similar year to year um with some variation depending on the weather cycle for that year well, you're 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 dealing with a live uh, mm-hmm. organism here yeah yep very much like a wine you know this year in vermont it was very dry it was uh, very uh, pretty sunny, um, but particularly the dryness will really be reflected in this year's vintage. 
you know, you said very much like a wine, and uh, France is known for a lot of things, especially its wine country. But up north in Normandy, uh, it's apples and it's it's Calvados, um, and it's cider. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let's talk about how cider kind of sits separately from the other beverages, how, how it fits at the table differently. Mm-hmm. And would you pour me a little bit more? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so we're talking about cider, particularly in Normandy. Yeah. Why yeah. not? Okay. Um, so cider in, uh, Normandy, they have a really, a really wonderful tradition there. They grow lots of uh, organic apples, first of all, which was a, a recent discovery we made and a lot of certified organic apples. Um, their tradition in France, um, in, and this may be more in Brittany, but um, they they often drink cider at lunch because it's lower alcohol. And one of the greatest um, little traditions I've found is uh, drinking it alongside crepes. And so they will have crepes and then cider. An asterisk next <laughs> yeah, <to that>. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just it's one of the most wonderful food pairings you can do. Um, French ciders use a really cool process of um, arresting the fermentation before the primary fermentation uh, before it's complete. And um, so they have naturally sweet ciders. And you you know that they're naturally sweet because the alcohol level is often 3%, 4%, 5%, whereas ciders, you know, apples when fermented totally dry, when all of the apples have been fermented, or sorry, when all of the sugars have been fermented out, they tend to be at more like 7%. Yeah, and what we're drinking right now is in that 6 to 7 range. Yeah, and so in this case, with the twig cuvee, it has fermented to dryness. Um, and so these sort of naturally sweet ciders, low alcohol, just go beautifully with lunch. So, of course, um, one, of the, one of their great uh, traditions was born. You know, you also do projects in, in England, but even more interesting to me right now, uh, I was listening to... Jimmy Carbone's uh, beer uh-huh. sessions, uh-huh. which you were on, um, is Kazakhstan, which quite possibly yeah. may be the origins of the apple itself. Yes. Um, the apple is believed to have, um, to, uh, to originate in Kazakhstan, and literally still today, if you can imagine this, there are forests of apple trees there. I've only seen photos of these, but there are forests of apple trees. So whereas when I think of an apple and when most people think of apples, you you kind of imagine a very sort of, you know, closely managed, you know, well-maintained orchard that's, you know, very um, linear and and very geometrical. And so the idea um, that that there are just an, an area of these wild apple trees that are 40 plus feet tall and growing just totally it's 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 really mind-boggling yeah are there other places in the world that you're looking for that forgotten fruit that lost fruit yes absolutely i um for a long time have wanted to make a cider in china um some people most people don't realize that china grows more apples than the rest of the world combined and i just think it could be a beautiful project to collaborate you know, with a really awesome 
cider producer that I'm sure exists somewhere because where you have 2 billion bushels of apples, you certainly have people fermenting them as humans have always done when they're around a substance that has sugar. <laughs> yeah. And and so I want to find that person and I want to work with that person and make a beautiful America Chinese collaborative cider. And, and not to bring it down to its most basic uh, form, but imagine these ciders, you know, with lo mein, with, mm-hmm. with Peking duck. Oh, yeah. You know, obviously with more traditional Chinese food. And, you know, uh, I am willing <laughs> to go to Chinatown with you and a whole bunch of your cider and test this theory out. I mean, I'm willing to take this on. Mm-hmm. I'd be so happy. That's very noble of yeah. you, Michael. And I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think, you know, taking some cider and, and going and having some and some Peking duck could be a, a fun uh, a fun adventure. Great New York Noodle Town is BYOB. Right? There I love it. Yeah. Peking Duck House is BYOB. Mm-hmm. I think we should even establish a BYOC. There you go. Now we're talking. There we go. Now we're talking. Down in Chinatown, and everyone should, you know, bring their favorite bottle of cider and and see see how it stands up to all that Chinese food. I love it. I love it. Let's do it during Cider Week, which is coming up in New York in a couple weeks. Here it is. And tell me a little bit about Cider Week itself. Like, where are you going to be? What's going to be pouring? And um, what should people do outside of Cider Week to, you know, really grasp and promote cider as a whole? Yeah. Um, Cider Week um, was started by a couple organizations in in New York, and it's just developed into one of the sort of backbone events of the industry nationwide, I think. Um, New York being just uh, a city that people turn to. And uh, and also because uh, for, for a city that people turn to for inspiration, and also because of New York's unique history with apples, it just makes sense on every level that there would be such a great week to celebrate our wonderful beverage. <laughs> um, so we'll be uh, hanging out. I'll be at uh, Union Square Wines on the first Saturday pouring some of our new ciders and really looking forward to that. Uh, they got a great team down there. And um, we'll be doing an event. Um, we did a little collaborative cider with uh, Huertas on the Lower East Side. And so we'll be celebrating the release of that um, on October 26th. And by pour, I'm assuming you mean throw. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> yep. Um, we'll be throw, throwing, definitely throwing cider. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for throwing cider with us today. Yeah. And. You know, if, if you're in Vermont, stop by Shaxbury and, you know, taste it in its it, it, its purest form right there. Um, and if not, there are plenty of places around the country and hopefully around the world someday soon yeah. that you will be tasting more and better cider. Thank you so much, David. A big shout out to Luke and Colin as well. Thanks, Michael. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. A big thank you to Corn for sponsoring Music by Cookies and David Engineering. Cheers. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.